0: This week, Father Paul explains that a sign in the Bible is distinct from a miracle and is used to assign a function or meaning to something within the story. I am delighted to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. The same word, Peter, is applied to the cattle and the firstlings of the caton. Here again, if you change from opener of the womb and then firstlings, you hear two sounds but in Hebrew it is the same sound, the fetor. And then in 13, repeated the fetor of an ass you shall redeem with the lamb. And If you do not redeem, we have here the root of Pada that becomes very important in the book of Isaiah. We have it in Arabic also, Fada, Fidiat. Okay, it's to pay something to get back what you have lost. In the Greek, it is interesting that you have a Prefix associated with ahorazo. Ahorazo means to buy. Exalorazo is to buy out and thus to redeem. So again, the more you know languages, I mean languages of the Bible, which are mainly the Hebrew and then Greek and Latin, You know, unfortunately, these languages are not given importance anymore, even at seminaries, and that's a disaster. Okay, and the text ends with what it began, sign and memorial. Here you have it in verse 16. It shall be as a mark, oath, on your hand, and then frontlets between your eyes. Uh, Let me make a quick comment on the oath. Remember, oath does not mean miracle. A sign is not a miracle. A sign means that I assign a function or a meaning for something. For instance, I can give you the rise of the sun as a sign and the rise of the sun is not a miracle. It's repeated. Or I can tell you when there is an earthquake, which is unusual, that would be more of a miracle. But for it to become a sign, I have to assign it to you as a sign. And the Greek for that, I believe I covered, but it's good to repeat that. simion. In other words, you give a sense, you give a meaning, you give a function to something. Okay, so we have two words. You have it even in the Greek, like simia terata. Terata would be the plural of something that is unusual. But the simion is basically a sign that you are signed as a sign. It's like deciding that when you eat unleavened bread, you remember Pascha. Why should it be so? It's because the Lord decided to make it so. And then beginning with 17, we have the departure towards the Red Sea. Technically, the Red Sea in Hebrew is Yam that would be the Sea of Reeds, as some translations put it, which is more correct. But then in verse 18, but God led the people round by the way of the wilderness towards the city. To and again, you have that wilderness that comes again and again and again and again. In Hebrew, again, it's milbar, and it is the same root as the word of commandment in the law, which is the bar. And interestingly, in 19. 19- We have that verse, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had solemnly sworn the people of Israel, saying, God will visit you, then you must carry my bones with you from here. And that will reappear at the end of Joshua. You see, the story is very powerful if you hear it. In its sequence, where these bones are buried in the land of the promise. And we spoke about Joseph, he's obviously a very important character in the Bible. I mean, in Matthew, it's very clear that Jesus comes from Joseph, okay, not from Judah. Very interesting. You have Abraham beget Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah, and then Judah is eliminated. And you have Joseph coming back to you, from which you have the New Testament Christ. And another verse before finishing here, which again is interesting. 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So again, his appearance is functional. Okay. If you have a cloud at night, it doesn't help you. And if you have a fire during the day, again, it doesn't help you. You have something that allows you to see it and follow it, which means that the Lord was leading his people. You have it also in those passages where whenever the tent of the Lord would move, then also the people would follow it. And that's thus again the Lord is the leading factor in this matter. You are not, uh, if you like, uh, traveling because you got a ticket and you go to the airport and you go to the plane. You have every time uh, to follow day and night and not say, well, I left San Francisco and I'm going to land in Boston. It's not enough in the biblical story you have to keep following, and that will come back to us in the New Testament, where Jesus asks his disciples to leave everything and to follow him. <laughs> we have a verb in Greek from which we have acolyte, someone who follows. Okay, so take note of these things and explain it to the people. But stop rehashing the stupid theology following Christ, and people start walking on air. Follow Christ. What do you mean follow Christ? You have to walk with your feet after him. if not following. You cannot feel in your heart. The silly heart of the hallmark cards drives me crazy. The heart means the core. If you have to follow, you follow with your feet. If you're asked to understand, you understand with your mind. If you're asked to hear, you hear with your ears for heaven's sakes. Okay, but I don't want to upset Father Mark and Richard who are very nice to me. Father Paul, you said it enough. Those who want to hear it heard it already. Yes, but I need to repeat it because this is what Scripture does. It always assumes that you have not heard the first sign. And then in chapter 4, we have Israel going towards the Sea of Reeds. And then beginning with verse 5, we have the pursuit of Israel by Egypt and Pharaoh. And you have locations And yet, the people started complaining when they saw the pursuit, and they said in verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. Notice the reaction of the people, obviously in the Biblical story, because this is what the author wants to underscore for you. And then you have that silly statement by them at the end of verse 12. For it would have been better for us to serve, and again hear it as Abad, to be the slaves of the Egyptians then to die in the wilderness and then the author is going to turn it around and show you that it is from the mitbar, bar which is the place of, of life but eventual death because assumedly you don't have enough water and food you have to know where to go and find the oasis and so on I mean, take the picture that ultimately you risk more to die in the wilderness than you do near the main rivers and the big cities. But the price is that you have to be the slave of the system that built the buildings and the canals. Whereas the Bible is telling you this midbar that looks like a place where ultimately you die. It is the place of life through the Dabar the, the that comes out in the wilderness, beginning with the mountain, which was in the wilderness of Midian. And then soon we shall find this text that speaks about the bread of life that comes from heaven, the manna. So it's a very powerful story. I don't like to say powerful thought and theology and idea, and so dismiss these words. It's the biblical story. It is very powerful. But the powerful lies one more time, one more time, one more time on the play on words which cannot function except in the original language of the text if the original is Greek, then you have to submit to Greek, if the original is Latin, but in this case, the original is the Biblical language that is referred to as Hebrew, and thus, you have to learn it, and teach it, as I said very early, to the children. And Moses said to the people, in verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation I commented on that, but let me go back to it and repeat that the same word, Yeshua in Hebrew, is very tricky because the Bible itself, I mean, the translation, sometimes translated as victory, sometimes it's salvation. But salvation and victory in English are two different things. So you have to teach very early and refer to it as Yeshua and explain to the people that your savior or someone who saves you, saves you from someone or something that is threatening you. Otherwise, he's not saving you. But for that person to implement your salvation from the threat, That person has to fight the threat and be victorious over it. Okay, you have it. We Orthodox have this. Jesus, you know, at his resurrection, trying to get Adam and Eve uh, out of the domain of death and so on and so forth. So he has to be victorious over death. That's how we explain it. But then we theologize it and we spiritualize it. No, do not do that. Make the word functional. Yasha means to save on the basis of being victorious over. Once you capture this, you will be able to follow the text more easily whenever you encounter Yeshua and not play the theological game here, Yoshua means salvation, there, Yoshua means victory. There is no here and there. Yoshua is the same word. Exactly, you have to deal with it exactly as you have to deal with Peter, as we mentioned earlier, to break something. And only then you understand the function